This is Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Call the show now at 760-480-8477. Email us at officehours at wscal.edu. Now, Scott Clark. This is Season 5 of Office Hours. Our theme is New Life in the Shadow of Death. We're talking about sanctification, the teaching of Scripture that believers in Christ, freely accepted by God for Christ's sake alone and united to Christ through faith alone, are being gradually and graciously conformed to Christ. It is easy to imagine that sanctification is the result of an immediate action by God upon the soul. By immediate, I mean that the Spirit is thought to act without using means. In the history of the church, more than a few people have thought this. In the early church, Christians began withdrawing from the world, first by themselves and then in communities to try to become holy. What they found was that they took the world with them. Other Christians have sought access to and information from God directly, without means, and we usually describe this as mysticism. The Reformed confessions would have us think differently, however. The Heidelberg Catechism does not begin explaining sanctification in detail until after it has completed its doctrine of the sacraments and the ministry of the Word. From its beginning, the Westminster Confession casts the Christian life as one that involves the, quote, due use of ordinary means. Shorter Catechism 88 ties closely our salvation, including our sanctification, to, quoting, the outward and ordinary means, close quote, by which Christ communicates to us the benefits of salvation. Yet just as the church has struggled with mysticism, it has just as surely been tempted to turn the word and sacraments into magic and priestcraft. We call that temptation sacerdotalism after the Latin word for priest. Of course, Christ alone is our high priest, and on earth we have ministers of word and sacrament, not priests. Here to help us think about how to relate the Christian life to the means of grace is the Reverend Dr. Michael Horton, J. Gresson Machen Professor of Systematic Theology and Apologetics at Westminster Seminary, California. Most recently, he is author of Pilgrim Theology, Core Doctrines for Christian Disciples, This title is available in the bookstore at Westminster Seminary, California at wscal.edu slash bookstore. This is part one of a two-part episode on sanctification and the means of grace. Hi, Mike, and welcome back to Office Hours. Thanks, Scott. Glad to be with you. Let's define our terms just so that we can make all the connections necessary. Briefly, what is sanctification? What do we mean when we say that word? Well, it's the process of being made holy. It's being cut off or separated from that which is common, not necessarily even that which is dirty or sinful, but taking something out of the category of common, of ordinary, and associating it with God himself. God ultimately is holy in a qualitatively different way than anything that he makes holy. He may make us holy, but we aren't holy, essentially, as God is holy. So God, primordially, is the one who is set apart from everything else. He's the creator, we're the creature. Of course, it's primarily ethical, but it also has these other connotations, just to be different, to be distinct. There's no problem, you know, with a pot that just you can cook your chicken in, but in the sanctuary of the Lord, under the Old Covenant, pots were set apart, consecrated for holy use. 
And so we have been set apart by the blood of Christ and by faith, by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, by union with Christ, we have been set apart from death and sin and the dominion of sin and death and have been transferred into the kingdom of God and his dear son. It's interesting that you noted that sanctification doesn't necessarily entail sin, that it can mean simply no longer common. As a side note, it is striking that is the way the idea is used in Genesis 1 relative to the seventh day, because sanctification existed even before the fall. That's right. He set it apart. And what's interesting is he says that after he has proclaimed every day good, or the work of every, the results of every day good. He did this and it was good. He did that and it was good. And he creates man and it's very good. And he rested on the seventh day and hallowed it, set it apart. There's nothing wrong with doing ordinary things on ordinary days. It's not sinful, but that day is set apart for holy things. And similarly, we are are set apart, not necessarily from things that are only sinful, but also set apart from anything that distracts us from our high calling in Christ. Nevertheless, after the fall, sanctification takes on an additional quality. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, we are now not in a category merely of common, but of condemned, corrupt mass of humanity. And we need two things. We need to be justified, declared righteous before God, And we need to be sanctified. We need to be renewed. We need to be part of the new creation. Jesus Christ, of course, is the answer to both. Be of sin the double cure. Save me from sin's guilt and power. That's exactly what Jesus Christ does. He's the answer to our guilt before a holy God, and he's the answer to our slavery, our bondage to sin. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. We want to connect this idea of sanctification, particularly in the second sense, God's work in us after the fall, conforming us to Christ, to another idea, and that is this idea of the means of grace. Now, this is a way of speaking with which you and I and folks in the Reformed tradition are familiar, but it might be an unfamiliar idea to other folks, and maybe even to people in Reformed and Presbyterian churches as well. So when we say means of grace, what do we mean? And from where do we get that language? Sure. The idea is clearly biblical. The phrase means of grace isn't found in Scripture, but the idea certainly is. For example, I don't think that any believer would question that God's saving grace comes to us through the preached word. In Romans 10, Paul makes that perfectly clear, that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. So God uses means in order to save us. There are people out there who think that to the extent that God uses physical means, to that extent, God isn't the one doing it. But I love Calvin's line, John Calvin, the reformer, who said, God's use of means does in no way take away from his primary operation. In other words, the fact that a farmer works through a plow doesn't take away his credit for being a good farmer. God is the one who is ultimately at work, but he uses means like sinful preachers who don't always get it right, and yet, through their proclamation of Christ, however weakly it is done, through that proclamation, Jesus Christ himself is present, addressing his people by his word. That's what Paul says in Romans 10. The Lord's Supper 
is described by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians as a participation in the body of Christ. The bread and the wine are a koinonia, a fellowship in, a sharing in the body and blood of Christ. And he contrasts that with the rituals associated with idol worship, where you have a sit-down meal sacrificing to the gods and proclaiming them lords. And the Apostle Paul says, no, that when you do this, you become one with the demons. But no, here at the table of the Lord, you become one with Christ. And so it's a real sharing in Jesus Christ himself, his true body and his true blood. And then baptism, of course, we have been forgiven of our sins and have received the Holy Spirit. And baptism is the sign and seal of what the Holy Spirit does. And so God uses means, tangible means. And if people have a problem believing that God actually delivers spiritual benefits through physical means, then they really are going to have trouble with Jesus because he is God in flesh. God has always been fond of matter, as C.S. Lewis said. God likes the idea of matter. He invented it. (laughs) And that gets us back to Genesis 1, right? In the beginning, God said, let there be, and there was, and it was good. Very early on in the second century, however, there arose anti-Christian movements or Christian heretical movements, groups that splintered off from Christian teaching with roots to ideas that had existed before the second century, but they developed into a movement which came to be known as Gnosticism. And the Gnostics hated matter. They hated the physical world, and they divided the world into spirit, that which is immaterial, and matter, that which is material and physical. And they said, whatever is physical is intrinsically evil, corrupt, and corrupting, and we need to overcome that. It is a fact that the Christians rejected that way of thinking with all their heart. Nevertheless, those ideas haven't really gone away, have they? No, they really haven't. There's especially, I think, in radical streams of Protestantism that have existed all the way from the Anabaptists to the present, there is this principle that is assumed more than it is understood or articulated explicitly. It's this assumption that I mentioned a moment ago that God is spiritual, therefore, when he gives spiritual things, he does so apart from physical means. You can only communicate spiritual things through spiritual means. This was even view that was held by the reformer Ulrich Zwingli. So there is that temptation over and over again to think in terms of spiritual things only coming by direct and immediate acts of the Holy Spirit. But when you go with fresh eyes from Genesis to Revelation to look at the actual works of the Holy Spirit, the works that are especially associated with the Holy Spirit, it's remarkable how in every major instance, it is not a case of the Holy Spirit working directly and immediately in a person's heart. It is the Holy Spirit working through hovering over the waters in creation, leading the people through the Red Sea, parting the Red Sea, leading people through to the other side filling the temple on Mount Zion with the glory of God. His presence was the presence of God, and now he indwells our hearts. But he was the one who brought about the incarnation in Mary's womb. He was incarnate of the Holy Ghost from the Virgin Mary. And so we have a Holy Spirit who likes working with the stuff that he himself made, along with the Father and the Son. So lurking behind the suspicion of means is really, we have to say, fundamentally an unbiblical and sub-Christian way of thinking about created matter. Yeah, you see that, Scott, whenever verses are expounded that very clearly 
teach, for example, take for example Acts 2. What must we do to be saved? They ask after Peter preaches the gospel. And he says, believe on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Be baptized for the remission of your sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. We come to a passage like that, and there are many other passages that are just as clear as that. And we say, well, whenever it talks about baptism in connection with salvation, it must mean spiritual baptism. There's no water there in that passage. Well, actually, there is water there. Baptism generally means in the book of Acts that people were taken down into the water and baptized. However, that doesn't mean that we can just ignore the other passages that clearly indicate that some people who are baptized, are washed outwardly, are not washed inwardly. That this is still the Holy Spirit's free decision here. The Holy Spirit brings the elect effectually into union with Christ, and as the Westminster Confession says, the effects of baptism are not tied to the moment of administration. So on one hand, we don't agree with our friends who say that baptism works simply by being administered. On the other hand, we don't believe that the sacraments are simply symbols or signs that witness to something that God does apart from them. Rather, we believe that God works ordinarily through preaching and sacraments in different ways, through preaching to create faith in our hearts and through baptism in the Lord's Supper to confirm and to seal that faith. Preaching is so important because it's foolish according to the scriptures. W. Robert Godfrey for Westminster Seminary, California. And by that, I think Paul meant that from a purely human point of view, preaching doesn't seem all that efficacious, all that sensible. There are voices in every period of the history of the church suggesting there are better ways to do things. We don't need preachers, we need priests. Or we don't need preachers, we need entertainers. But the Lord has appointed preachers because preachers bear his word as it's written and apply it to the hearts and minds of God people. And so the, by the power of the Holy Spirit, when the pastor is doing his work faithfully, the Word of God lives in his heart and is communicated to the hearts of God's people. Westminster Seminary, California, wscal.edu, 888-480-8474. Westminster Seminary, California, for Christ, His gospel, and His church. We use this phrase, means of grace, and yet we say grace is God's favor, free, unconditioned by anything in us or done by us, earned for us by Christ. So if that idea might strike the listener as odd. They could understand how a sacrament could be a means of a kind of medicine. Mm-hmm. That was the medieval and the Intravenous rope. tubes, yeah. Exactly, or putting gas in a gas tank or medicine through an injection. But what are we saying when we say, as we do in... Westminster Confession 1-7, the due use of ordinary means, and the Shorter Catechism uses similar language in, in question and answer 88. So what does it mean to say a means of divine favor? That's such an important question, Scott, because I do think that we can unwittingly just assume a, frankly, Roman Catholic view of what grace is, and then we just carry that forward into the way grace works. Grace, as you point out, according to Scripture, grace is not something. Grace is God being favorable. It's God's favor. It's also God's gift. God no longer looks on me as an outcast, as a rebel, as a wicked sinner who who must be condemned. He looks on me as his son, as a co-heir 
with his natural son, Jesus Christ. He has taken me into his family. He's justified me. He is sanctifying me. He will glorify me one day. That is his favor. That's due to his favor, his grace. His grace is the motive, and his grace is also the gift, the gift of justification, the gift of his spirit, who also sanctifies us. That gift is not something, it is a person, namely Christ with all of his benefits and the Holy Spirit as the deposit indwelling me, guaranteeing my final redemption. So if you put all that together, there's no good analogy for what we're talking about if you're thinking in terms of medicine being injected into you. Rather, it's a gift being handed to you from one person to another. And in this case, even your ability to receive the gift is part of the gift. So God's favor and gift are what we mean by grace. So to say that baptism and the Lord's Supper and preaching are means of grace is to say that they are the avenues through which the events in which God himself, the triune God, is active in delivering Christ with all of his benefits. It's part of the process. Football coaches are always talking about process. You have to trust the process. Well, there's a process of the Christian life, and God administers the process through these means, these instruments. Is that a fair summary? Yeah. Imagine if you were just to sit around all day and say, uh, you know, I prayed for my daily bread today, and nothing came. I don't think I believe in God anymore. You'd get hungry. Get pretty hungry. (laughs) And you'd be pretty disgruntled at at God. Uh, Look, I prayed, give us this day our daily bread, and he didn't answer. Manna didn't come or nothing. Manna didn't fall from heaven. And no, God does provide daily bread, but through a thousand processes, as you say farmers, warehouse workers, truck drivers people who work in the back of Albertsons to put the stuff in the bins. I mean, just countless and countless layers of God's means that he uses. He comes incognito. The reformers used to say that he clothes himself. He wears masks when he comes to us. So he doesn't frighten us. You know, no one can see God's face and live. But this God of blinding glory and pure holiness descends to us and makes us holy precisely by putting on masks and saying, I declare to you just as surely as I put this ring on your finger, as it were, as surely as I put this water on your head, as surely as I put this bread and cup to your lips, as surely as you receive this in faith, so surely are you the recipient of all of my promises in Christ. We use the word ordinary. And I have the sense that we use that in two senses at the same time, but we don't always explain what we mean. So here we are. Let's explain (laughs) what we mean when we say the due use of ordinary means. Well, the ordinary means refer to those things that God has revealed clearly in his word that ought to be normal. Ordinarily, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So ordinarily, apart from hearing the gospel, people are not saved. Now, that doesn't tell us anything about what God does extraordinarily. 
God is free, of course, in his compassion to save whomever he will. We believe that God calls the children of believers home to heaven if they die in their infancy, and yet they have not heard and believed the gospel. We don't have any problem believing that God works mysteriously, magnificently, magnanimously in his compassion in these circumstances. We don't put any boundary on what God has not told us about his grace. But ordinarily, people are not saved simply by God's zapping them or God simply forgiving them apart from the proclamation of the gospel and their receiving it. Ordinarily, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Ordinarily, baptism is God's sign and seal of the covenant given to believers and their children. Ordinarily, the Lord's Supper is the way in which he strengthens our faith on our pilgrim way. Now, does that mean that God never blesses his people with revival or awakening or special times of refreshment or whatever you want to call it? No. Does it mean that God can't? Surely not. Of course not. We should rejoice if God were to do that in our day. But we don't look for it. We don't look for anything extraordinary. Why? Because we already have everything we need under the category of what God has delivered as ordinary. God says, look, wherever my word is preached and my sacraments are rightly administered according to my son's institution, I am present in the midst of you. Ordinarily, there are blessings far greater than you can gather that belong to you through these means. And so it's not a question of what God can do. It's a question of what God has promised to do. Look, you're meeting God. He's dangerous. Don't just imagine you can waltz into his heavenly chamber and say, I'm here, aren't you glad? You you know, he's holy. And therefore, God descends to us and he says, here is how I am going to be haveable by you. Here's how I'm going to be, I'm going to make myself small. I love that. There's that phrase in Calvin where he says, in Christ, God has made himself small. God has made himself small in Christ, and he's even made himself smaller in these very human, everyday things like a fellow sinner getting up and preaching, just ordinary water and baptism that you get from the tap, ordinary bread and wine. These don't seem spectacular. Where's the revival? Where's the great exciting thing that's happening down the street at the megachurch? What about this? What about that? What about the kids? But God is saying, look, I'm looking out for all of you. I'm taking care of you. Don't look for the extraordinary. Stop being spiritual storm chasers and just sit there and embrace my gifts that I'm giving you through the means that I promised to give them to you through. I like that very much, because they do that back home where I'm... <laughs> I know, I did that just for you. <laughs> and it's true, you know, when you go out, you look for a tornado, you know, the meteorologist says it's going to be here, you know, so you go and you sit and then... Hard to do that with an earthquake. <laughs> well, you just sort of sit around and wait for those, but you go and and then it, it doesn't materialize, and it's disappointing. Or it blows through and... Destroys. <laughs> destroys a whole town that has been built up over 90 years, yeah. or years or 200 years. That's the problem, Scott. Looking for God in extraordinary ways where he has not promised to bless, more times than not, leaves people in worse shape after the storm than they were before, because what it does is it tears up whole communities, which over time have been fed by the ordinary. You're listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. So there's two senses to this word ordinary. One is that this is the usual way in which God operates. And secondly, 
This is the way that God has ordained or promised to operate. So it's not a second-class kind of spirituality or way of growing in grace and becoming more Christ-like. It's the usual way. It's the way that God has set up. You've hinted at this, but I want you to be a little more explicit. Not everyone in the Reformed tradition has liked to speak this way, even though it's in the Westminster Standards, even though Heidelberg Catechism 65 makes it very clear that it's through the preaching of the gospel that the Spirit ordinarily brings his people to faith, and it's through the sacraments that he strengthens that faith and confirms the promises that he's made. Still, there have been those who've said we shouldn't tie the operation of the Spirit to means and you've touched on this, and they've said, no, God operates immediately. It's pretty clear where you come out on this. How have other people talked about this, and how do you reconcile these ways of speaking? Yeah, well, I think that, as you say, all of our confessions, the Westminster Standards and the Three Forms of Unity, make it very clear, for instance, even effectual calling, the Holy Spirit calling us, uniting us to Christ, effectual calling happens through the Word. Now, there have been some theologians who have argued that regeneration is distinguishable from effectual calling, and that that is an immediate, direct act of the Holy Spirit apart from means, which is what immediate means. And I like the earlier language of our confessions on this. I think that it's very difficult to reconcile, in my view, with Scripture, this separation of regeneration from effectual calling— When Peter tells us that we've been born not of a perishable seed, but of an imperishable seed, through the living and abiding Word of God, which is the gospel that we preach to you. So he even identifies the gospel specifically as the means by which they were born again. But it's important for us to be clear that there have been these two ways of speaking, and when we're not clear about which way we're speaking, that can create some confusion, and sometimes failure to be clear about this, and you've been perfectly clear, so I'm I'm not suggesting that in the least, but those who assume the other paradigm, that is the idea that God must operate immediately in regeneration, and then they distinguish regeneration from effectual calling. When they come at this question or these questions from that paradigm, they haven't always recognized that they are in certain important ways at variance with the historic way of speaking, that is the older way of speaking from the 16th and 17th centuries, and arguably at variance from what we confess. And yet they assume that paradigm, and then when they hear the older language, they get confused or they misunderstand it, or even, I've heard it accused of being uh, Arminian. Yeah, and it is important to appreciate why someone like Charles Hodge, for example, would distinguish regeneration from effectual calling. It was primarily, as I understand it anyway, in reaction to Arminianism. You know, let's really build up the barricade and take away any opportunity for saying that there was anything in human beings that brought about their new birth. So, for example, you can't say that you are born again because you believe. We all as Calvinists agree with that. And that's important, right, to get that very clear. So neither you nor I nor any of us is saying that we are given new life because we believe, because that would be a contradiction, a flat contradiction of Ephesians 2. By nature, we're dead in sins and trespasses. And by nature, I mean in Adam, just to get this out on the table and perfectly clear. In Adam's fall, sinned we all. 
and by nature we're dead, and dead people don't believe. And so the only way that people ever come to faith, and the only way they're ever made alive, is by the powerful, supernatural work of the Holy Spirit, who raises dead sinners to life and gives them faith. So that's not in question. What is in question is whether God uses external means, like the preaching of the Word, for example, to accomplish those purposes. Is that accurate? Exactly. And when you're on the line out there defending the gospel from Arminian objections, and you're saying, look, nothing that human beings do contributes to their regeneration, it stands to reason that you might say, well, even this person up here preaching, However, I think it's, first of all, to misunderstand several texts that clearly identify the new birth with the means of preaching, specifically the preaching of the gospel. Not one passage tells us about an immediate regeneration that takes place apart from the Word. Even on the analogy of creation, right? Yeah. God spoke. And it was creation into existence. Even on the analogy of Ezekiel 37, what did the Lord say? Say to these dead bones. So it's always, as far as we can tell, through the Word. It's the Spirit operating, and He's sovereign, and He's free, but He's a speaker, and He operates through means. So affirming the divine use of means doesn't make one an Arminian, right? No, exactly. Yeah, I find it very hard to believe that a view that says God is the one doing the speaking, even through a sinful human being, God is the one who's speaking. Christ is the one who is reconciling sinners to his Father by being present with his word. I'm just summarizing Romans 10. How could that possibly be considered Arminian? So I understand the history and why people are concerned. That's one area, though, where I think that some have gone too far in trying to solve a logical problem or question in a way that doesn't have sufficient exegetical support, and we don't really need it because God is the one who's preaching. Christ is the one who's doing the saving through the word that he speaks, even through the lips of ordinary people. Thanks for listening to Office Hours from Westminster Seminary, California. Don't miss an episode. Subscribe now to Office Hours in iTunes. Find all the shows at wscal.edu slash officehours. Copyright Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved.